you saw a three-minute clip on a rather remarkable event, something that we've been told over and over again when we visited China and worked in China is impossible. But what you watched on the screen represents the reality that there are 60 mental health centers at the 26 universities in Beijing, China, and evangelical Christians have the privilege of training their mental health workers. What is remarkable about this is that this is an event that would never happen at a secular university in the United States. But the simple reality is God has thrown open a wide door and we've been invited by literally the number one mental health expert in China to train the mental health workers and the mental health teachers at these schools. And of all things, the oddest miracle of all, the man who leads them is myself and my qualifications are having a PhD in Old Testament and Hebrew, which qualifies anybody as a mental health expert. <laughs> in fact, knowing the Bible well qualifies you as a mental health expert. Because ultimately, man, you got a responsive group. You, you've got a movable platform, the Red Sea, and alive brethren. Very cool. But every mental health issue, no matter what it is, is ultimately a spiritual issue. And the great truths of the Bible, integrated into the emotions of the heart and the instincts of the soul are the most profound change agent on this planet. What you know about God as a Father, Jesus Christ as a Redeemer, and the change agent of the Spirit of God is the most powerful force in the world today, bar none. For the last 20 or 25 years, I've been doing research on how family backgrounds affect adult functioning. And in the last five or six years, as I was working through this research, I was working through Genesis, and something absolutely struck me. When you spend 20 years figuring out that there are three basic types of families on this planet, and we'll be looking at them this evening. Healthy families, performance-based families, stressed out or dysfunctional families, and each of them by themselves creates an, its own instinctive, instinctual world. Been studying that for 20 years. Then I'm studying through Genesis, and each of those families is there. Healthy family performance-based family, thoroughly dysfunctional family. 
And then finally, the ultimate cure for any family is there. To know God as a father, to be raised by him, to be reparented as an adult by an Abba father. And so we're going to look at three family types and then God's new family. And for those who are being baptized this evening, the best thing you can do for yourself is get to know your dad in heaven very, very well. Jesus Christ has died to bring you into a new family. Jesus Christ rose from the dead to open up the door of heaven so you can be hugged by his dad. So let's talk about those three families. Something's not working. <laughs> okay, either he did that or I did that. Let's see if... Now, he did that. So when I do this, you do something. <laughs> Hit it again. Oh, okay. Now backwards. That's the proof of the pudding. We got it. Okay. We're going to look at the book of Genesis, and we're going to examine three families in the book of Genesis. We will be sweeping through the book of Genesis, but I believe that the outline is very simple. Abraham's family is relatively healthy. Isaac's family is a performance-based family. Jacob's family is thoroughly dysfunctional. And the hopeful thing is that God can work with each of them. As you see on the screen, starting with Abraham, we have the direction going towards Jesus Christ. But the background for Christ is the family of Abraham, then the family of Isaac, the family of Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel, the nation of Israel, out of whom comes Jesus the Messiah. All of that we are familiar with. But as we step through this, we'll see that Abraham, the father of a multitude, has a son named Isaac. Isaac names, means laughter because Sarah laughed at a most inappropriate time. And then Jacob, how would you like, a, like to have a son named opportunist or cheat? If anybody here is named James or Jacob, that's what your name means. <laughs> then his name was changed to Israel, which means God has prevailed over the dysfunction of Jacob and ultimately over the dysfunction of his family. Twelve tribes coming out of him. Abraham represents a healthy family. Isaac, a performance-based family. Jacob, thoroughly dysfunctional family. When I first became a Christian at the age of 17, I found the book of Genesis very encouraging because I thought my alcoholic dad, my codependent mom, were nothing compared to the families of Genesis. It just filled me with hope. If God could work with them, he can work with us. Oh, no. Okay, good, 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 good. In Genesis chapter 12, Abram, 
the exalted father is what his name means. Abram is called by God. And God tells him to go forth from your country, go forth from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you, and I will make you a great nation. It's very important that when Abram was called, he was called to a decisive break with his family and cultural background. Our instincts, our emotional life, our mental life is formed by our cultural and family background. When a person comes into the body of Christ, they are entering a true new culture and a true new family. And it's critically important to recognize that something is being left behind. People are not being abandoned. But the cultural and family influences have to be abandoned in order that there should be a true, in, instinctive, emotionally powerful embrace of the new family of God. And you can see this principle in the call of Abraham where he is told to leave the religion of Babylon behind, the polytheistic, idolatrous religion of Babylon. He is to leave his location behind. He is to leave his family behind. And ultimately, he is to leave his culture behind. Very important to realize that in order to build something new, the old has to be taken off and the new firmly embraced. This same principle is enunciated by Jesus Christ. Matthew 23, 9 through 12. Do not call anyone on earth your father. He is speaking to the Israelite nation, the people of Judah. For one is your father, he who is in heaven. Do not be called leaders, for one is your leader, that is Christ. I teach at a seminary. I teach in a lot of different countries. And every once in a while, someone will walk up and say, could you explain what that verse means about not calling anyone on earth your father? I give them a brilliant exegesis. Do not call anyone on earth your father. And then you can watch their face go into crisis. Because what am I going to call dad if I can't call him father? That's put me in an emotional crisis. It's hit me right where my emotions are. It's hit me right where my instincts are. And if I take that verse seriously, I've got a problem. Because that means I've got to disengage myself from the influence of my dad and embrace the influence of God the Father in heaven. And if your dad was sane and spiritual and smart, he would turn to you and say that is the wisest thing you could ever do. Because our Father in heaven is a vast improvement on the best human father on earth. Those words were meant to be understood in their plainest sense that when we make a migration from our family and cultural background, it should be an emotionally deep migration. 
not just one of theory, not just one of words, but one of emotional and intuitive reality. What Abraham was asked, Jesus Christ asked everyone in this room to do, to recognize that your ultimate dad is God the Father. And this principle is critical for the three different types of families in Genesis. Now, when we look at Abraham's family, as in any family, it is a mixture of pluses and minuses, negatives and positives. The negatives are these. Instead of leaving his family behind in Genesis 12, 4, he took Lot with him. Then in Genesis 12, 10 through 20, he lied about his wife Sarai, who was a beautiful woman. And to the Pharaoh of Egypt, he said, she's merely my sister, and lied and got himself into problems. Then Sarai, his wife, trying to fix the fact that she was childless, followed the customs of the time and gave her maidservant to Abram to have a child. Terrific mistake. Something they regretted, but something she did. Then in 20, chapter 20, verses 1 through 7, Abram lied about Sarah again to one of the rulers of the Philistines. So one of the principles, the healthiest family has problems. But here's the difference between the healthy family and the unhealthy family. The healthy family addresses its issues. The unhealthy family allows the issues to rot. And so let's look at the positives for Abram. Chapter 12, verse 4, he did respond in obedience and he left Babylon. In chapter 13, 1, 1 through 8, he allowed Lot to leave, his nephew, which left the last of the background influence behind. In chapter 16, one of the fun things about being around a lot of psychologists and teaching mental health principles is you get to say the obvious. Here's a mental health principle, O oh men of the congregation. If you want to have a happy family life, here's the first principle of your life. Listen to your wife. There is a ton of evidence based on solid scientific research that if a man actually listens to his wife, the family life is happier. Anyway, <laughs> chapter 16, 4 through 6, he listened to Sarai, his wife, a mark of a healthy home. They listened to each other. In chapters 18, 10 through 13, Yahweh, the God of Israel, showed up and told Abraham and Sarah, you're going to have a kid and then Sarah laughed about having sex. Now that's a mark of health. Because the older you get, if you don't have a sense of humor about sex, you're in trouble. They were quite old. Sarah laughed. Then God said, Yahweh said, who laughed? And Sarah, being a fine godly woman, lied and said, I don't know. And then God said, as an act of event, revenge, call the kid laughter, Isaac. And that's what his name is. 
laughter, bringing joy in the old age of Abraham and Sarah. Chapter 21, 9 through 12, he listened to Sarah again. And then 24, verses 1 through 3, Abraham arranged a non-Canaanite bride for Isaac, his firstborn true son. But if you look at the life of Abraham, it's a relatively healthy family life. Not without its struggles, not without some huge mistakes, but the principle of a healthy family is this. They make their mistakes, but they address their problems. Unaddressed issues in a family life may not cause damage tomorrow, but in one decade or two decades, they are totally destructive. So that's the first family in the book of Genesis. Relatively healthy family. Then comes the second family, the family of Isaac and Rebekah. They had twin sons, Esau and Jacob. Genesis 25, verse 24. When her days to be delivered were fulfilled, behold, there were twins in her womb. Now the first came forth red, all over like a hairy garment. So they named him Rug, Esau. Red Rug. Verse 26, afterward his brother came forth with his hand holding on Esau's heel so as to pull him back into the womb. So his name was called Jacob or the opportunist or the cheat who was trying to pull the firstborn back so he could come out of the womb first and have the primacy. Now that is called an entrepreneur from the womb. <laughs> And Isaac was 60 years old when she gave birth to them. When the boys grew up, Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the field. Now, this is one of the weirdest lines in the Hebrew Bible. And translation after translation doesn't know what to do with it. And so they either under-translate it, over-translate it, or absolutely guess but in the Hebrew Bible, it says, but Jacob was a perfect man. It's the Hebrew word thom. In every other place, and it occurs frequently in the Hebrew Bible, it means a righteous, upright man. The problem that the translators always face is Jacob was a cheat, a conniver, a liar, and a bum. But other than that, he was fine. Now, why was he fine? He was fine because he had one thing going for him. Every once in a while, he would trust the living God, and God would say, you're all right with me. Now, the shock of that is meant to be a shock, because one of the things that scriptural stories do is they're supposed to cause us to feel uncomfortable. And we're supposed to ask, how could Jacob be called a perfect man at the beginning of the story when he's a wretched man all through the story? And the answer is, he did a couple of things right. He grasped after spiritual reality. 
in the midst of his cheating. He trusted God every once in a while in the midst of his conniving. And then finally he faced reality and dealt with it in his mature years. A cheat who trusted God. Another way to say it, you're well qualified to be a saint if you're a sinner. If you're not a sinner, you'll make a lousy saint. In fact, you'll go to hell if you're not a sinner. Only sinners need a plot. That being the case, Jacob was a perfect man. Now the heartbreak is in verse 28. This is where the family problems come in. Now Isaac loved Esau. And notice E.D., loved Esau. There were certain circumstances that he loved Esau for. Now Isaac loved Esau, and literally in Hebrew it's stated this way, for the food in his mouth. Esau was a skillful hunter. Esau brought home food that Isaac loved. And, es and Isaac's love for Esau was based on what Esau did. And what Esau did was more important to Isaac than who Esau was. And that's the heart of the performance-based family and the confused family. People become more important for what they do than who they are. And that is always a trip to heartbreak. Now notice the next line. But Rebecca continually delighted in and loved Jacob. Jacob was the recipient of unconditional love. Esau was the recipient of conditional love from his father. That is critically important to file away in your brain because it explains one of the oddest stories in the book of Genesis. Isaac and food is a major theme of this part of Genesis. We've already seen it. Isaac loved Esau for the food in his mouth. Read Genesis 24-7. Isaac says, and prepare a savory dish for me such as I love. Esau, I don't love you, I love the food you bring. And bring it to me that I may eat so I may bless your soul, so that my soul may bless you. Genesis 27, 9. Rebecca says, make a savory, well, make a savory dish for your father such as he loves. The weird thing is that whole family life, in all of the major events of the family life of Isaac, revolves around food not around love for each other. The mark of a performance-based family is when education, money, hobbies, food, recreation, TV, anything like that becomes more significant than human beings. It's a mark of unhealth. We'll skip that. So, the family, Isaac's preoccupied with food, preoccupied with performance. Rebecca, preoccupied with Jacob, interestingly enough, preoccupied with God's promise. Esau, preoccupied with food, preoccupied with performing for his father. Jacob, preoccupied with being a spiritual opportunist. Here's the story. When Jacob, verse 29, Genesis 25, 
had cooked stew. Esau came in from the field, and he was famished. And Esau said to Jacob, Please let me have a swallow of that red stuff there, for I am starving. I am famished. Therefore his name was called Edom or Red. But please let me have a swallow of that red stuff there, for I am famished. Think a little bit. How did Esau gain love? Food. What did Esau fail to get? Food and then love. How long did Esau stay out hunting? Until he was nearly starving to death. Because he knew the game to be approved by his dad. He had to bring home hunted food. He couldn't find any game. He stayed out, he stayed out, he stayed out. He's starving, finally in defeat, humiliation, knowing his dad would be disappointed. He comes back and he runs into Jacob. And Jacob understands the dynamics of the family. And Jacob understands Esau better than himself. And Jacob, like a shark cutting through the water, heads straight at Esau to make a meal, not for Esau, but of Esau. Esau said to Jacob, Please let me have a swallow of that red stuff there, for I am famished. Therefore his name was called Edom. But Jacob said, and this is a weird line, first sell me your birthright. A birthright in Hebrew law and custom was double the portion of any other child. The firstborn son always got twice as much. So in this case, two boys, Jacob says to Esau, Give me your birthright so I get twice as much as you do. Now, you would think that a skillful hunter who is carrying weapons could take the food, especially if Jacob sat around in tents and Esau was used to killing animals. He was armed. He was dangerous. But Jacob understood that he was facing a man who was a wounded animal. And he knew Esau was emotionally upset. So he says to him, first sell me your birthright. Esau said, behold, I'm about to die. I've been out in the wilderness, hunting, getting nowhere. I'm about to die. So what use then is the birthright to me? Then Jacob said, cold-hearted salesman that he is, First swear to me, so you won't back out. Then Jacob, so he swore to him, sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob said to Esau, gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and he drank and rose and went on his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Why did he despise his birthright? You already know. He's in a performance-based family. When a young person realizes that what he matters or what she matters in the home is what she does and not who she is, it is a slow drain of the soul. The greatest gift a parent can give a child is a personal delight in that child that has nothing to do with what the child does or not do, just pure delight in the child. 
It's the most wonderful gift you can give another human being, just pure delight. But when strings are attached, the soul corrodes. Esau's soul corroded. And therefore, when he was faced with having a birthright, he thought, who cares? I don't have my father's love. I am just a production agent for my dad. Why should I care if I get a double portion of neglect, even if I get things? So he gave it away. He could have easily, easily taken that food. But something in his soul said, who needs this kind of family life? Performance-based family. Here are the symptoms. Isaac's appetite was central in the family. Favoritism. Rebecca favored Jacob. Isaac favored Esau. That always happens in performance-based families. There's always a loser. There's always a winner. Performance, whenever you have a performance system, there's dishonesty, and Jacob was a perfect example of it. Triangulation, that is, they couldn't talk straight to each other. They would send out messenger services to typically the mom in the home to deliver messages to the dad because the children could not talk straight to their parents. Manipulation and unaddressed undercurrents. Unhealthy families do not address the issues. Healthy families have problems, but they address the issues. Next family. You know the rest of the story with Esau and Isaac. I'm confident you do because you're in a Bible-teaching church. And the rest of the story is Jacob cheated Esau again, cheated his father. Jacob had to flee from his home because Esau wanted to kill him. Perfectly happy family situation. Jerry Springer would love this stuff. And then Jacob flees. He's broke. He goes to his uncle. His uncle Laban is a bigger cheat than he is, so he gets what he deserves. Rachel. He meets Rachel. Now Jacob loved Rachel, so he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Marries Rachel, and between Rachel and three other women, has 12 sons who become the 12 tribes of Israel. His name is changed to Israel. Now this family life is a mess. He marries Rachel plus three others. He loves Rachel, and the other three are marriages of convenience. Two are concubines. Sex is not something laughed at. Sex is business. Leah pays Rachel to have sex with Jacob because they're competing over the number of children they have. The sons are murderous. There's favoritism for the sons of Rachel. There's anger and strife. Jacob on his deathbed looks at his sons and says, you are the sons of anger. Huge problems in the home. But they did some things right. All three families did some things right. Two families didn't address their issues. Abraham's family did, but each family did something right. What did they do right? They valued God's promises. Isaac, Rebekah, and Jacob, usually when there was a gun to his head, 
prayed. They accepted that God's hand was in their life. Even when they were profoundly suspicious, superstitious about it, they accepted that reality. And Jacob, towards the end of his middle age, quit running from God. The reason is God crippled him. If you're a cripple, you can't run too fast. And it was at that point his name was changed to Israel. God has prevailed or, run, or won. You cannot run anymore. Things were done by God to intervene in these families. Three different families. Abraham, relatively healthy. Isaac, a performance family. Jacob, thoroughly dysfunctional. And Jesus said, you've got to leave family life behind. Now, there's a fourth family in Genesis, and it's the family of God. Genesis has a remarkable ending to it, and it revolves around a man named Joseph, the second to the last son of Jacob. And the family of Jacob does a favor for Joseph. Let's see what it is. Jacob had 12 boys plus daughters. Leah, his first wife, the older sister of Rachel, had Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Jeblin, Zebulun. All six of those hated the other six boys. Great family dynamics. Bilhah was the maidservant of Leah, a maidservant of Rachel, and she had Dan and Nephthali. Zilpah was the maidservant of Leah. She had Gad and Asher. And Rachel finally had Joseph. And in childbirth, she died when she had Benjamin. The two favorite boys were the sons of the beloved of Jacob, Joseph and Benjamin. And all the other boys hated those two. Great family dynamics. In Genesis 37.3, Jacob shows his favoritism towards Joseph by giving him the famous coat of many colors. The other brothers are jealous. Joseph has dreams about his future. The other brothers are murderously jealous. They betray him by first putting him down into a pit to die, and then they sell him to the Egyptians, ultimately and he's betrayed by the family of promise. This is the real irony. Uh, Abraham's family, Isaac's family, Jacob's family were all the families of promise, and they got gradually worse. They got so bad that the sons of Jacob first planned to murder Joseph, then they decided to sell him into slavery to get rid of him. But here's the irony. That was probably the best thing they could do for the kid. Get him out of the family. Get him out of the family of promise. Get him into captivity. Get him into Egypt. Get him away from a thoroughly dysfunctional situation so that he could discover the fact that God is the father of the orphan and the abandoned and he can take care of his own and he can raise his own. Let's see how it works. When Abram was called, he had to leave his location, family, and culture. When Joseph was rejected by his family, 
he was forced to leave his location, his family, and the dysfunctional culture he had. Then in the providence of God, Jacob rescues his dysfunctional family. Jacob puts pressure on his brothers, his ten brothers, and in the process of that, something astonishing happens. The ten brothers become reconciled to one another. They become reconciled to Joseph and Benjamin, and health is introduced into Jacob's thoroughly dysfunctional family. And the striking things, thing is, is that the two major sons of Leah, Reuben and Judah, the leaders of Leah's portion of the family, are thoroughly reconciled to Joseph and Benjamin. Here's a principle. If you want to bring health to whatever family you're in, pursue a healthy relationship with God, no matter what it costs you. Because inevitably, it will shake up the stasis, the state of the family, by one family member pursuing health, and over time, it will profoundly influence <coughs> the rest of the family for good. So a quick summary. Three families in Genesis, healthy, performance-based, dysfunctional, all of them with weaknesses, but all of them having a Father in heaven who will break through those families, and he is determined to bring health. And health begins by acknowledging the need for health through Jesus Christ our Lord and let us pray. Our Father, we thank you that you are the God of families, that you are the creator of families, you are the rescuer of families by rescuing the individual soul. We thank you that this evening we'll have the joy of watching baptisms, and as those waters ripple, as they go down within the waves and come up, all wet. As those waters ripple, so will the effects of their new life ripple through their family of origin, through their extended family, through their community, as they pursue you as a good father. What Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob did, we would ask that they would do. Pray, trust, and wait for the intervention of God. For we ask this in Jesus' name, amen.